Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 2. This will be a, quite a familiar Christmas passage to all of us. Have you ever asked the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why aren't things going my way? Why is it really hot at the end of December? (laughs) Yeah, I've been asking a lot of those why questions recently. Uh, I think those can come up particularly during Christmas time. We all have these great ideas that this time it's going to be the perfect Christmas. Everything's going to go exactly the way we plan. Everyone's going to be happy the whole time. Everybody's going to get along. Nothing's going to come to spoil it. Maybe some of you had that perfect Christmas, but I'm guessing for most of us, our plans didn't quite work out the way that we had hoped. Um, But I think even more broadly than that, I think we spend a lot of our lives kind of reflecting on this frustration that we have that things don't work out the way we want them to. And sometimes that can be minor things. For example, I have a really bad track record driving. It just going from one place to another, I get a flat tire, I hit a deer, my car rolls uh, multiple times. Just things happen, you know, you know minor things. Um, or it could be more major things. Uh, Christmas time for a lot of people is very difficult. Um, it's a time where you remember your loved ones who aren't there anymore. Um, it's a time where you get together with a family that you've never gotten along with. It's a time where you look back on your year with a lot of regret. And you start to ask this question, why? Why isn't life as good as it could be? Um, Why am I suffering more than I think I deserve? Why does a God who is in control of everything decide to let a lot of bad things happen? I think that's a question that a lot of us, in one way or another, have reflected on uh, recently and um, definitely uh, this past year. And that's a question I want us to kind of let sink in, even though it's not necessarily a fun question, because it's a recognition of something that's very real. And that thing is what the Bible calls the curse of sin. Okay, when When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought that sin into the world, and with it came a curse, actually multiple curses. And if you go back to Genesis 1, you see how these curses work themselves out. Some of parts of the curse are about human relationships. Y'all aren't going to get along very well. You're going to have people over you who exert tyrannical control. Or you're going to have people under you who try to subvert and undermine you. Or you're going to have peers who you just lock heads with. Some of the curse is related to children, childbearing. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But not just the act of delivery is going to be hard, but everything associated with children is going to be toilsome. It's not going to be as easy as it could be. You know, you talk to parents, and they say two things. I love my kids, and it's hard. Both of those things are true, right? 
in this cursed world. We see the curse working itself out in work and in just living life on this earth. God says that the world, the earth, this created world is going to be turned against us. It's going to be frustrating. That job that YouTube says is supposed to take 10 minutes, it's going to take 10 hours. It's just the way it works, right? Little things that we plan on doing are going to be way harder than they should be. Work, which should be enjoyable, is going to be toilsome. In multiple facets of our life, we see this curse worked out. Big ways and small ways, in devastating ways, in irritating ways, we see this curse. And it's important for us to reflect on this curse because one of the things that I want us to really focus on in reading the very familiar passage about Christ's birth is in what way does Christ's birth address this whole curse problem? In what way does God becoming a little baby insert itself into this cursed world and then do something about it? How do we, on the one hand, recognize that things are not as they should be, and on the other hand, recognize that Jesus' birth somehow does something about that reality? That's kind of what I want us to explore today, because I think it's a very real uh, experience for all of us. So turn your attention to Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. The word of God for the people of God. Okay, so this is a passage that maybe a lot of you even read around Christmas time, maybe Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. It's something that we're very familiar with, right? Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn. Mary gives birth in a barn or something. Jesus was born. That's the story. Okay, but I think there's a lot of things going, here, going on here under the surface. A lot of deeply theologically significant things going on. But I also think it's speaking to us in a very practical human way as well. So what I want us to do is I want to kind of explore this on two levels. On the theological, biblical side of things, and also on the human, personal, we're living life in a cursed world side of things. And see how the birth of this little baby does something about those realities. Okay, so the first element of the curse that I see here is in uh, the first few verses. It says, A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I don't think we like Caesar Augustus. I don't think if I'm a Jew living in Bethlehem that the name Caesar Augustus is a happy name. Okay. Uh, if you're a Jew, Caesar Augustus represents everything wrong with the world. Okay, he is a pagan ruler who claims to be God, who has 
taken over and inherited the largest empire the world has ever known. And he's exerting tyrannical control over all of it. He doesn't worship Yahweh. He does not care about the Jews. There have been several Jewish rebellions leading up to this point that have been squashed by the Romans. And now Caesar's telling all these Jews, you need to go be registered. I need to make sure I know how many of you there are so then I can take your money. Um, you know, there's this common saying that there are two things certain in life, death and taxes. Right here. We got taxes. Uh, nobody likes taxes. Nobody in April goes on to their computer saying, government, I just want to give you even more money than you're asking for. I'm just so grateful for the fact that you're taking my money. No. We don't like the reality of taxes. And these are a lot more strenuous. And their taxes to be used by an empire who is exerting tyrannical control over the Jews. This is not a, we're going to use your money in order to better your life. This is, we're going to use your money in order to keep you miserable. So Caesar Augustus, not a good guy. This is one element of the curse that we see that's very real. These people, Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, they do not have control over much of the things in their life. They don't have control. Just like that, some guy living 2,000 miles away in Rome can say, I know you're nine months pregnant, but I want you to leave your hometown, take a 90-mile dangerous journey to Bethlehem to be registered so that I can tax you. And you have to do it. And there's no other option. They're not in control. They have many people who are exerting a control over them that they have no say over. They didn't even vote for the guy. Right? Do you ever feel like that sometimes? That a lot of the parts of your life are just out of control? You cannot control the things that you want to control. You can't control the people who are around you. You can't control your boss. You can't control what your church leaders do. You can't certainly can't control what the people in Washington do. There's a lot of parts of your life that you have no control over. You really even can't control what you're shopping for because apparently, you know, your smartphone's being tracked and they're telling you what you should buy. <clears throat> you go to the store and they put things in specific places so that you can buy that over there and not this over here. We're not actually in control of very much and it becomes very frustrating because the fact that you're not in control means that you're made to do a lot of things that you don't want to do. Okay. Now, we can think of this on a theological level. Going back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they did not like the fact that God was in control over them. Right? God says, you can have all of the fruit of all the trees of the garden except one tree. And they said, that's not fair. I don't want God to be in control over me. I'm going to take what I can get. And the moment they did that, God said, okay, you don't want me to be in control? You don't want me to be your benevolent ruler? You want another ruler? I'll give you another ruler. And you know who became Adam and Eve's ruler? Satan, the serpent. 
See, what Adam and Eve didn't realize was there's no part of the equation where we get to be our own rulers. It's either God or Satan. We're just in the middle. And when we said, I don't want God to be in control over me, we submitted ourselves to Satan and to sin and to death. And ever since Adam and Eve, all humans have fallen into this destructive pattern where we don't get to call the shots, but who does get to call the shots is our greatest enemy. And if you're a Jew, you're looking at this going, Caesar Augustus, he is the human manifestation of that enemy. He is the human manifestation, the puppet almost, of Satan, that tyrannical ruler who's been ruling over mankind since we rejected God's authority and power. So that's, that's kind of the theological curse that we're seeing here played out. But then there's also a human curse. Um, how many of y'all traveled some for Christmas? Traveled. Did you travel for Christmas? I traveled. A few of you. I guess some of you had people travel to you. I traveled. I had a six-hour drive to Tennessee, then a six-hour drive back. Okay, oh, so strenuous and arduous, sitting down in my car as it did all the work for me while I was listening to music, talking on the phone, in a perfectly heat, cool, controlled environment. Just, oh, such a strenuous trip. What, what uh, Mary and Joseph have to go through is they have to travel 90 miles on foot, when Mary is nine months pregnant, and this terrain is up and down, up and down, rocky, dangerous. Apparently, this whole route was filled with robbers, with lions, and bears. Oh, my. <laughs> it was a dangerous journey, and it was a difficult, strenuous journey. Even for the healthiest person, it would have been difficult. But for Mary, it's particularly difficult, and it probably took them a week and a half to two weeks. And a lot of this is desert. They have to take their own food and water with them. They eat bread three meals a day. Their feet get tired. They don't have a change of clothes. It's hot in the daytime. It's really cold at night. All because Caesar Augustus told them to. That's the curse. All of us experience this to some degree, that life is just harder than we want it to be. And that we are at the mercy of a lot of other forces and factors that we have no control over. And the question is why? Why? And what do we do about it? Well, it's interesting see what Mary and Joseph did about it, you know, we don't get a lot of indication what they were thinking. I mean, you have to imagine that at times they were grumbling. They probably weren't singing the praises of Caesar Augustus the whole way to Bethlehem, right? But they made the trip. They made the trip. They did what they needed to do. They wound up in Bethlehem, only to find that they had to stay outside because there was no room for them. And we're going to get to the no room part in a bit. 
But what we do see here is that they made the trip and they submitted to the curse. They submitted to the curse. Now, um, there's a great quote that comes from some French philosopher that I've never read, but I found this quote online. So um, I just wanted you to know that I don't read French philosophers very much. But this French philosopher, whose name I can't pronounce, he, he said, out of difficulties grow miracles. Out of difficulties grow miracles. And I think that's a theme that we can start to trace in this story. This is a very difficult journey. And it's a very difficult existence, being under the tyrannical control of the Roman government. But out of these difficulties grow miracles. Right? God is weaving some sort of plan here for Mary and Joseph, and it turns out for the whole world. Even as they have to take these arduous steps to Bethlehem. Even as they're bearing the burden and weight of this cursed world, God is working a miracle through those difficulties. So they get to Bethlehem, and we see one obvious miracle, the Son of God's born, right? But we see some other miracles that are worked through the reality of, Sa or of um, Caesar Augustus being king of the world, right? The fact that the Roman Empire had control over most of the known world actually turned out to be a really good thing for God's kingdom. Um, Paul tells us that in the fullness of time, Christ became a little babe. The fullness of time. The perfect time. What, did this, what made this the perfect time? Well, for one thing, the Romans had built roads all throughout the empire, which would come in handy when the disciples, after Jesus ascended into heaven, they had to spread out. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Spread the gospel. And they were actually able to do it because most of the known world was under the authority of one government. It would be like traveling from North Carolina to Tennessee. It's pretty easy. You don't get stopped at the border. Nobody cares. We're all part of the same country. Right? So travel became so much easier because the Roman Empire was in control of everything. Everyone spoke the same language. Greek. Everyone spoke Greek throughout the known world. That really came in handy. You know, we have missionaries who have gone out to countries and having to spend a lot of their time learning the language just so that they can start to share the gospel. Imagine how much easier it was in the early church when everyone spoke the same language and the disciples could go forth and the gospel could spread because Caesar Augustus was emperor over the largest empire the world had ever known. We read uh, the story about uh, Mary and Joseph having to flee from Herod and go down to Egypt. You know why they, these two people, dirt poor people, were able to take a long trip down to Egypt and live there for a couple years? It's because Egypt was part of the Roman Empire. They're all part of the same country. The only reason why Mary and Joseph could flee from Herod to protect the life of Christ was because Caesar Augustus was emperor. Out of difficulties grow miracles. God's doing a lot of things here under the surface that you don't feel when you're making that trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. You just feel the curse. But God's doing a lot of stuff. So, if we want to just pause for a second and think about ourselves, 
we're in the midst of a cursed world too. Kind of what do we take from this? I think a couple of things we take from this is one is our natural reaction is to fight tooth and nail against the reality that this world is not the way we want it to be. Okay, if you find yourself getting frustrated or angry when things don't go your way, I don't know if you ever do, I do. Uh, who are you really frustrated and angry at? Fundamentally, you're frustrated and angry at God because he's the one who ends up orchestrating things, right? But what if this curse that we feel, what if these difficulties that we feel are actually part of God's purpose and plan for our lives for a reason? What if out of these difficulties grow miracles? What if instead of fighting tooth and nail, being angry against God for the fact that our life isn't what we would have it be if we were king, what if instead of that, we kept our head down, we did what Mary and Joseph did. You do the next thing. You do the next right thing, and you trust that God is working things out according to his wise and mysterious counsel. So God's at work. But we're not done yet. Because there's some other stuff that Mary has to go through. Like, she has to actually give birth to a baby. I've heard that that's difficult. I will never experience it. <clears throat> uh, but you talk to any woman who's given birth, and she will acknowledge the fact that this seems like a cursed endeavor. You know, Genesis 3.16 I will increase your pain in childbearing. Mary had to go through a very painful labor, even under the best of conditions, but she's not in a hospital or in a birthing center. She doesn't have a doula or somebody there to help her give birth. She doesn't have, you know, anything to take away the pain. She's in a barn with animals, most likely horses, donkeys, camels, and everything that comes with those animals. <clears throat> That's where she's giving birth. And Joseph's there. I'm not sure how much help he was. He's obviously never done this before. And in an ancient world, the husband is not even supposed to be there for the birth. So they have midwives and things to help out. We don't know if, they, if Mary had a midwife. We don't know. We don't know how much help she really had. Cursed. Difficult. Of course, this part of the story, it's a little bit easier for us to see, well, of course God's doing something because, of course, she's giving birth to Jesus. So, you know, that's a difficulty, but obviously we see the miracle. But I think we need to step back a little bit before we fully make that conclusion and need to reflect a little bit on the theological significance of a virgin giving birth. That's a miracle, right? Now, I've pondered this for a while. Why did Mary have to be a virgin and give birth? And there are lots of, people have come up with a lot of reasons for it, theological reasons and things like that. But I think first we have to look at, are there any other instances in Scripture, in the Old Testament, of miraculous births, of 
Women who should not be able to bear children, bearing children. And do we see that those situations are significant? Are they important, maybe, to redemptive history, to the plan that God is working out in time? What do you think? Have there been any other miraculous births in the Bible? Yes. We've got just a couple chapters before this, we have Elizabeth, Mary's cousin. She was barren, and she gets pregnant in her old age. And that's the clue. That's the clue. That's Luke saying, hey, I'm going to link these two miraculous births together here. A barren, older woman who gives birth and a virgin who gives birth. And that invites us to look back into the Old Testament and ask the question, do we see any other miraculous births, any other barren women who give birth? Uh, yes. So Abraham's wife, Sarah, gives birth to Isaac. Now, that's pretty important because Isaac's the, children of the, prom the child of the promise. Right? Without Isaac, nothing else in the Old Testament is going to happen, including Jesus being born. Right? God makes a promise to Abraham, from your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Right? And he's actually taking it all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. Without being able to bear children, God's redemptive plan does not work. If Sarah cannot bear a child, God's redemptive plan is done. So she gives birth to Isaac, but then Isaac marries Rebekah, and she's barren. Again, without this woman being able to bear a child, everything's done. But then Rebekah gets pregnant with twins. And then Jacob, he takes two wives, and Leah has plenty of kids, but Rachel doesn't. She's barren. But then she gets pregnant with Joseph. Turns out that Joseph's kind of important because Joseph turns out to be the son who preserves the life of all the other sons of Jacob. He's the one who goes to Egypt. He's the one who saves them from the famine. Without him, everything's done. We see several times throughout the Old Testament this emphasis on if this miraculous birth does not happen, all of God's redemptive plans are done. And everything fails. Curse continues, and there is no redemption. There is no miracle through this difficulty. It's just done. So in the Old Testament, we're already trained to be thinking that salvation comes through the birth of a child. But often that birth is fraught with difficulty. In, in fact, it requires a miracle. God's miraculous hand. See, the fact is, we, we are the reason why the curse is in the world to begin with. Right? Whenever you face difficulties in life, before we start charging God with great injustice, we have to remember that Oh yeah, it's humans. It's, it's our actions that brought this to begin with. 
The curse is there because of what we've done. And because of that, there's nothing that we can do to undo the curse. Just like there's nothing that Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Elizabeth can do to bear children. They need the miraculous, gracious hand of God in the midst of this cursed world. And we see time and time again that God comes through. He comes through. And we, and, you know, we could spend more time, we could talk about Hannah, who obviously gives birth to Samuel. Um, also, Samson's mom, she was barren. This motif is all throughout the Old Testament. So now we track it into the New Testament, and we see these two women, relatives, one, Elizabeth, another barren woman who's about to bear a child, and then Mary. Now, Mary is interesting, because this is even a step up. Okay, God's been doing this miraculous birth thing for a while, but it's one thing for a barren woman to have a baby. It's another thing for a virgin to have a baby. That's never happened before up to this point, and I'm guessing it probably never will happen again. This is God saying, okay, I could do that, but I'm going to do you one better. And I'm going to do it in order for many reasons, but I think one of the reasons is to show humanity what he's going to do for us. Okay? Israel in the Old Testament is called a barren wife. Okay, we read that in our uh, call to worship today. Israel is called a barren wife. It's because we, humans, do not have the power to save ourselves. We don't have the power to bring new life, salvific life, into this world. But then we take a look at Mary. Mary is a virgin. She's, in, in kind of the ancient Near Eastern perspective, she's pure. She's full of life and potential. She's She's a bride-to-be, right? And God's saying Jesus is going to come to earth to turn that barren wife into a beautiful virgin. Jesus is going to come to earth to turn those cursed people who were kicked out of the garden into a spotless bride. Paul and then Revelation picks this up, right? The church. That's what we're called, the spotless bride. You may have ever thought, wait a second, we're not spotless. I mean, I sinned yesterday. I probably sinned this morning. Uh, but no, Jesus is doing something. He's reversing the curse. We're all going to become like Mary, in a sense, right? The spotless, pure, virgin bride of Christ. So we get those two side by side there. It's deeply symbolic. But let's think about this a little bit more on a human level. Mary's going through childbirth in a barn. Not the way she envisioned it. But even before that, things had been really hard for her. Can you imagine what it was like when she went to her parents and said, I'm pregnant, but it's not what you think. <laughs> no, no, trust me. This, this child's been conceived of the Holy Spirit. Do you think her parents believed her? I don't think so. Joseph didn't believe her. Joseph was about 
to put her away until an angel appeared and said, no, 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 actually, the story is true. I know it sounds crazy, but it's not. Now, if you are in the ancient world, and you're a woman in the ancient world, your source of hope and life is that you will get married and you will have kids. Okay, that's what gives you an identity and a purpose and a hope if you're a young woman in the ancient world. Okay, so the moment that you get pregnant out of wedlock, you lose everything. You lose respect. You're shamed by the community. Um, if Obviously, if Joseph hadn't been stopped by the angel, she would have lost her, her um, fiancé and would never have had hope of getting married again. You would have been turned away. You were shamed, rejected. Some people think this is why she actually went to stay with Elizabeth, to get out of town because of all of the gossip that was going around because of her. She just had to leave for a while. Either way, Mary's experiencing something deeply unfair, but something deeply real. She's being mistreated and shamed by the people who love her most and by her community because they assume something about her that's reasonable but, in fact, untrue. If that's not part of the curse, I don't know what is. I mean, have any of you ever been falsely accused or mistreated in a way that just doesn't seem quite fair? Or maybe even you were doing the right thing. Obviously, Mary was doing the right thing. She, she, when God told her the plan, she said, do it. Your will be done. No matter the consequences. She's doing the right thing. She's following God's plan, and she's getting cursed by other people. This is not fair. This is not fair. But that's what she's experiencing. But, you know, I think when she's holding Jesus in her arms, she realizes that it's worth it. Right? It's worth it. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God who's coming to redeem the world. The curse is real, and it's hard, but it's worth it because of what God is doing through it. Out of difficulties grow miracles, right? And I think there's a, a deep takeaway that we can have from this, which is it's not that God just is redeeming things in spite of the hard stuff in our life. No, he's redeeming things through the hard stuff. It's through the curse through all of the bad experiences that God works redemption in our lives and in the life of the world. It's not around it. It's not in spite of it. It's through it. So if you're going through something that's very difficult, the temptation might be to feel like you shouldn't be here. You should be somewhere else. You shouldn't be in the center of this curse, this difficulty. But maybe that's exactly where Maybe it's the center of the curse that's the center of God's redemptive plan. Maybe it's through the difficulty that God works the miracle. That's what God is doing here with Mary. And I think that's what he does with us through Christ.
Okay, real quick. Third curse. There's no room in the inn. Now, no room in the inn, this is, this is difficult. It could mean that they went to, you know, a Motel 6, and the Motel 6 says, I'm sorry, we're all booked up, but you can stay out in the parking lot with all the animals. <laughs> this is where the analogy breaks down. But it's also possible this word in, if you look in your footnotes, it probably says it. In could actually mean guest room. It's the same word that Jesus uses for the upper room with when he goes to do the Passover with his disciples. So it just really what it means is there was no room. They didn't have a place to stay. Now you have to ask the question, well, why not? If Joseph's going to his hometown, surely he had family there. So why didn't he have a place to stay? And there are kind of two options. Option one is that there was just so many people in town because of the census that they're just, they really didn't have any room. Like, sorry, everybody is booked up. You know, your family already has your, your cousins. You know, they can't help you. But you'd think that with Mary being nine months pregnant, somebody would give up their room for Mary, their family member. But what if there was no room because she's nine months pregnant? What if there's no room because they assume that she's an adulteress? We don't want you to stay with us. Stay outside. Now, we have to speculate. We don't know. It's possible that really there just wasn't any room and nobody was willing to help a nine-month pregnant woman out and give her the room for the night when she's about to give birth. Uh, but either way, this seems like a curse to me, and it doesn't seem fair. Now, if we look at this theologically, um, this seems to represent uh, the reality of the fact that when Adam and Eve sinned in the, in, the, uh, in the garden, God kicked them out, right? There was no room in the garden for sinners. There was no room in the garden for people who were rebelling against God. There was no Room And for us living in this fallen world, we experience the reality of that all the time. It might not be that there's physically no place for us to stay, but in our relationships, often we feel rejected. There's no room for you. Right? In uh, our, it could be our workplace, it could be our family, it could be um, our church. You feel out of place a misfit, there's no place for me, I don't feel like I belong. Those are all parts of the curse, right? And even deeper than that, you feel like you and God are distant. Often when we are in a difficult situation, when things are really hard, we assume that God is very far. We assume that there's no room for us with God. He's rejecting us. He's pushing us away. There's no room for you in the end. That can be our assumption often when we are experiencing the curse of being in this fallen world, that God wants nothing to do with us. Now, a normal human response is to then to not want to have anything to do with God, which is actually what we see here. They didn't know it, but Mary was carrying God in her womb. And there was no place for Jesus in the end. The world had no place for God when God came to 
to redeem the world. And we see this as Jesus grows up. Jesus didn't entrust himself to men because he knew what was in man. He did not trust that man would receive him. Jesus came into the world and the world did not receive him. That's what John says in chapter 1. There was no room for him. And that's often our experience. When things are hard, we often push God away. There's no room for you. I don't want you here. Because we feel like God has no room for us. But of course, if you look at the story, we know exactly why Jesus came. Right? The fact is, Jesus left his home in heaven in order to come to an earth that had been cursed by God so that he could bring us back home to God. He left his home to create a home for us. And it started even as a little baby. Rejection. His whole life was filled with rejection up to the point where even the Jews who a week earlier had said he was the Messiah rejected him. And he was rejected so that we might be accepted. He was okay with there being no room for him because he was making room for us. This whole story, if you go back, you see that what happens to Jesus as a little baby, even while he's in the womb, is exactly what's going to continue to happen to him throughout his whole life. Just like Mary and Joseph were traveling, he's going to be traveling his whole life. He says, there's no place for me to put my head. Just like Mary was shamed and rejected by her family and by her friends and by her community, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And he experienced all of that. He experienced the tyrannical power of the Roman government that nailed him to a cross. He experienced all of the curse that humanity could possibly experience in his life and in his death so that he might, through the curse, redeem those who are stuck under the curse. Through difficulties grow miracles. This is what Jesus came to do, and this is what Jesus is continuing to do, but it takes a lot of time. He experienced what we experience, right? And it says now that he's our high priest who can sympathize with us because he knows what it means to live in this cursed world. And that can give us hope. To not give up, to not give in, and to look forward with longing to when Christ returns and fully and finally redeems us from the curse. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. And that's what Christmas tells us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful reality that Christ submitted to the curse of this fallen world so that he might redeem us. Father, we pray that you would give us hope and eyes to see that and that you would give us um, joy even in the midst of struggles and trials and the curse of this world, that you would give us sustaining grace and delivering grace and that Christ would come quickly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.